This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. You know, there's a cost in Iran to being a Christian. I was reading just two or three weeks ago in, in uh, a VOM uh, release that a young man um, who had come to Christ um, was leaving the country, hoping to go, I believe, into Turkey was his avenue out. And he was caught in his laptop, and on his laptop they found a video of his baptism. Um, he was arrested, and he is currently in jail. I believe he's been sentenced to six years in, in prison. And the charge basically is sedition, going against the state. It, is, it would be like being a traitor in this country, giving away state secrets or doing something so so heinous against the country that uh, you are a traitor to your own country. And on that basis, he is serving time now. Um, challenges. A little bit about me, a little bit of my background. Uh, I grew up Catholic, a very different sort of Catholic home. You won't find one in a thousand Catholics whose, whose parents opened the Bible, actually, and read from it. Uh, I have memories as a, as a child of my dad reading from Scripture after supper. I don't know how often that happened, but I have that memory, and, and my dad has confirmed that. Um, but a very different sort of upbringing that way, very religious upbringing, uh, but really as a child did not know Christ, um, which at some point, you know, that's an individual choice and a decision anyway. So um, it wasn't until I went to Brazil that I began to become radicalized. The junior year in high school, uh, my parents moved to Brazil, for whatever reason chose to bring me along. Um, probably a good choice on their part, good choice for my, for my sake. But while I was there, I began to start asking those existential questions of life, about the purpose of life and the meaning of life and such. And the reason or the catalyst for that as much as anything was uh, walking out on the streets of this city of 15, 20, 25 million people. If you kept your eyes above, uh, above the level of the street, it was a beautiful city. Apartment buildings, skyscrapers going on for miles and miles and miles. But if you dropped your eyes to the street, there are people living on the street virtually in every block who had migrated in from the, the northeast and other parts of the country that were living on the sidewalk, sleeping on newspapers, men, women, children. There are handicapped people living on the streets, begging for a living. Uh, a strong sense of insecurity. You put your wallet out of sight, you kept it in a front pocket, whatever. Um, there is just a sense of fear with a city that uh, was overrun, so to speak, with poverty amidst wealth. That really challenged me to start asking questions. And I did so, and, and as I moved into college after that year, um, I was befriended by a number of Christians and came to know Christ uh, as my Lord and Savior in my freshman year of college. Well, in some ways, that, that answered some of the questions that I had, but it started a whole ream of other questions. Uh, as a disciple, learning and growing, there, there are questions galore of, about understanding what this was all about. Well. As I grew in the Lord, let me see if I can move this forward, or if we're back at the beginning. There we go. I found that um, the Bible is full of um, references to loving one another. Uh, I discovered this, that, that um, we had a special calling to each other. And if you go through scripture, scriptures, Lloyd found for me this morning a, a 31 references that uh, I'm not sure the setting that we had... Uh, we had learned this in, but 31 different references to one another's within Scripture. Uh, everything from 
Uh, Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another, another above yourselves. Uh, Acts 6, 1 through 6 talks about the early church in Jerusalem, how a group of men, including Stephen, who was martyred later, were appointed uh, to care for the needs of the widows in that community. So all throughout scripture, it talks about, you know, forgive one another, care for one another, think of others more highly than yourselves in Philippians 2. Um, we have a special obligation within the church to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And just as, as we become sons and daughters of Christ, we become brothers and sisters to each other. And that special uh, joy, but also obligation that we have to each other, to, re to treat each other in a very special way. Well, I learned that. I also learned that within my neighborhood and community, I had a whole other level of obligation. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Um, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second or linked commandment with that is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, in effect, I came to understand that there, there are certain obligations within the body of Christ in terms of our level of love and care for each other. But then there's another level within the community with our neighbors. And Jesus followed this love the Lord your God, this summation of um, the commandments uh, with the story of who's my neighbor. And you all know the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who was, who was uh, beaten and left to die. And various people passed by, people who are religious even, who are thought highly of within the religious community, a religious leader, and ignored him. And the one who was the neighbor was from an outcast group, the Samaritans. In those days, a Samaritan would be, would be a lower class, another class, another culture that you had nothing to do with. You didn't speak to them. You didn't walk through their territory. You walked around their territory if you had to go to the other side. So Jesus very radically said, your neighbor is universal. It's those that God brings you in contact with. So I came to appreciate that these one another's that scriptures talk about, talk about on the level of, number one, the body of Christ here and now, my neighborhood and my community in a different way, I still have obligations that are a little bit different. One simple example of that is uh, how we're to judge within the body of Christ versus outside the body of Christ. There is a clear distinction in scripture there about how we respond. If Shannon and I are, are in accountability group, we're brothers together, we know the Lord, we love the Lord, and Shannon is doing something inappropriate, Shannon is sinning in some fashion. Maybe it's a sin of neglect of his family or his wife or, or uh, his time with the Lord. I have an obligation as his brother in Christ to, to call him to task. After getting the log out of my own eye, and there's a process that's described in Scripture of doing that. But that same obligation does not exist with the one another's within our community. It's not my job to go up to, to someone who is in, sinning within the community who does not know the Lord and whack them up head with Holy Scripture and say, you're sinning, you're going to hell because of such and such. Scripture does talk about that, but that's a different level of one another. There's a different kind of response there. We're still to love and we're to, to follow the, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit in loving that person, but we love them in a very different way. Jesus loved the, the scribes and the Pharisees in a very harsh, seemingly harsh way at times. But the way he loved the woman who was accused of adultery was very different. Or the Samaritan woman at the well who'd had five husbands. All right. A third level of one another's within the universal church. 
Paul, all throughout his writings, had a, a real and active and vital concern for the church. Not just within the neighborhood. That was there and that existed. The body of Christ here within Sterling. But the universal body of Christ throughout the world. Um, Paul was constantly talking about the various churches. He was sending people out. He was praying for those churches. Uh, they collected funds for uh, the church in Jerusalem. That's mentioned on several occasions because the church in Jerusalem was really struggling financially. It was very poor. And so some of the, the wealthier churches, money was collected and taken to the church in Jerusalem to see to the needs of the people there. So uh, Paul, even when he was in prison in Rome, uh, in how, under house arrest in Rome for uh, two years prior to his execution, uh, he was sending letters out to the churches. He was sending messengers out to the churches saying, I'm sending these people to you with my greetings and to teach you and, and to be my presence there among you. So there was that universality of the church that was very, very important. I also learned some other lessons. And this was not, uh, as I grew in the faith, it was not something that I learned as a young Christian. Um, and that is that persecution is normal within Christianity. And of course, Christ was our greatest example of that, coming and dying uh, for our sake, for the forgiveness of our sins. Um, there are dozens of scriptures that you could find, and I've just put a few up here. Uh, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Um, Within the early church, within the, the, the time right after Christ, the church was persecuted mightily. People were thrown in jail. Paul had a hit list. He had approval. He had authority from the religious leaders to go after and arrest and persecute Christians. 2 Timothy 3.12 In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or in Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. It's hard to imagine in this country, in this culture, and, and getting out of the culture helps somewhat with that in terms of getting perspective. But the normal Christian life involves persecution. It involves suffering. We in America, I think, falsely believe that God's number one hope for us is that we be happy, that we feel good. And, and we view God much in this culture as a Santa Claus that we can go to and say, gimme, gimme, gimme. Whether it's our health, whether it's things we want, uh, just that's kind of a cultural perspective on, on God and on Christianity. But the real faith involves persecution. It's there. It's seen as normal. If you look at the... Um, the country with the largest number of Christians, I believe, in the world today is probably China. You know, America, the United States has been talked about as a Christian nation. You can almost talk, replace that with China now in terms of the numbers of Christians. And Christians that almost universally in China live under persecution. Our, our fifth son, uh, we raised four boys and kind of picked one up uh, while he was going to K-State, who's now part of our family. Uh, Shane Junbin, um, his parents are pastors in an underground church in China. And they have suffered persecution 
Uh, they actually went as missionaries to the Ukraine, I believe, and they were run out of the Ukraine. Uh, basically, a hit list and rest list came, and they were uh, believed to be on that list, so they fled for their lives back to China. Um, Chinese Christians, um, in China, the persecution varies radically based upon your location. In other words, you may, in, in some settings, if they know you're a Christian, you will not gain employment uh, on any kind of professional level whatsoever. You're relegated to sweeping streets and, uh, and doing menial labor is the only kind of employment that you may find based on the persecution in that area. In other areas, if uh, you have to register to, to, to get a Bible. Can you imagine that? If, if you were going to buy something at the bookstore, you had to register with the government so they know that you had that? In some places, uh, it's illegal to have, uh, to have worship of any sort. Uh, so that's where the underground church has flourished. Um, so in China and in most of the world, if you look at where most of the, the Christians are today, I would say the majority of Christians live under persecution. And in, in saying that, I'm discounting much of Western Christianity as being primarily cultural, something that is, has been inherited from father to son. Many years ago, I, I picked up a number of internationals at Kansas City International Airport to bring them to Emporia State, where they were going to be studying for the next couple of years. And I'll never forget this young man sitting in the front seat with me, a Lebanese. And we were just kind of getting to know each other and talking and this and that. And he asked some good questions, and I asked him some. And you know, one of his was, uh, are you racist? You know, you're American. I watch movies. Are you racist? And I paused to give him a thoughtful answer, and his conclusion was, well, you must be. You didn't give me a, you didn't give me a definitive right-out answer. That was a great question. And I asked him, I said, you know, are you, are you Muslim? Are you uh, Christian? Are you Druze? What's your background? And he paused, which was a clue, and he said, well, actually, I'm half and half, because my mother's Christian and my, father's, my father is Muslim. And I went, you nailed it on the head. <laughs> You know, that understanding of what faith is and religion is is something that's inherited. And that is the state of the church in much of the Western world. There is no active relationship with Christ, a living, breathing, dynamic relationship that's taking place. So, one of the things I've learned, and I'm going down rabbit trails here, is that persecution is normal and to be expected. I also learned, as a, as a student of history and a student of, of the Bible, that Christianity flourishes in persecution. It was part of God's plan that the early church would be persecuted. Uh, Stephen was killed. If you read in Scripture and Acts, that's when people fled, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. That's when the church started spreading like wildfire as Christians dispersed. That has happened uh, in recent days in China. In China, I believe beginning with the Boxer Rebellion, many, many missionaries were killed at that time. Uh, not just missionaries, but Christian, Chinese Christians under the Boxers and continuing under the Communists. And as we sat back in America and, and were dealing with World War II and what was happening with Mao and communism in China, uh, I, for one, and many others, didn't see what was happening in China. Christianity was flourishing and, and spreading like crazy. In parts of China, it's reported that the, the percentage of Christians runs as high as 16% in some provinces, which is really amazing in China. Um, our, our son has told us that in some places in China, if you are known to be a Christian, you have, an, you have a leg up on getting a good job because people assume that you have morals and ethics that are not present in the broader Chinese culture. Whereas in another city, in another locale, you take your life into your hands.
Um, lots of other examples that we could go through, but I think that's something that, that uh, is historical and has been documented, that Christianity flourishes, um, the word flourishes under persecution. And finally, uh, another piece that I've learned is that uh, Scripture has some clear directives in regard to the persecuted church. And this is that third one another. Hebrews 13.3 uh, is one of my favorite verses. Uh, and that's really the theme verse for Voice of the Martyrs, saying, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. We don't all experience persecution at the same time or in the same ways, but we, are, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that we need to be intervening for, beginning with prayer and in other fashions as well. I think also of 1 Corinthians 12, the body analogy. If one heart part hurts, we all hurt. We're all interconnected, both locally in the church of Sterling, the Christian church of Sterling, which is beyond the walls of this church, or Cross Point, or the Presbyterian Church, or the Methodist Church. You know, we are Christians within this body here in Sterling. But also globally, also beyond. If one part of the church is hurting, if one part of the body is hurting, we suffer as well. Okay. Um, we shared the story of Padina already, and for the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to share uh, Salavat's story. If you are interested, I do have a, a DVD. I think I've got it back there. If not, I've got several in my apartment that have four or five other stories, much like the one of Padina. Padina is on that one, and I think there are four others from other countries, Uzbekistan, Colombia, uh, Pakistan. Uh, I think India may be in there as well. Um, well, let me tell you a little bit about Asia Bibi. I have followed her story for a number of years. How many of you have heard of Asia? Okay, a number of you have. Followed her story for a number of years. It's probably four, maybe even five years ago now that Asia was in a field. She was a, a field worker uh, picking fruit, vegetables, I'm not sure which, with a group of women. And she was asked by, I believe, the, the, the straw boss who was in charge of the crew to go fetch water for the group. So she got water and she brought it back and a number of the women refused to drink the water she had brought back because it was unclean, because she was unclean, because she was a Christian. And somewhere in that process, over I think a couple of days, they started talking about faith and religion. And at the end of those conversations, one of the women basically said that you've blasphemed against Muhammad by saying Jesus is the Christ and, and thereby demeaning Muhammad. Um, she was arrested, her family was arrested. Um, there was a mob that formed and the police, if I understand it correctly, actually rescued them from the mob, which is often how justice takes place in, in third world countries. Um, she was rescued from the mob, but she was accused of blasphemy and later in court was found guilty of blasphemy and sentenced to death. Uh, that's the punishment within Sharia law is if you blaspheme Muhammad that you pay for it by death. She has been sitting in prison for close to four years now. The Pakistani government does not know what to do with her. Um, millions of petitions have been received by the Pakistani government. Letter after letter has been received uh, by the government on her behalf. Governments have intervened and through their diplomatic channels said we are concerned and we are watching. The government, I believe, would like to release her, but the culture at this point will not allow it. There have been two major assassinations in her case. 
related to her case. A federal minister in the federal government, I believe a minister of dealing with religion and culture, who said, you know, we need to look at these blasphemy laws. They need to be modified. I don't believe he said they need, it needs to be eliminated, but they need to be modified. That man was assassinated, and people rejoiced in the streets of Islamabad at his assassination. The governor of the largest state or province in Pakistan also spoke out about this case. He was assassinated. It would be like the governor of New York and someone in Barack Obama's cabinet being assassinated over the same legal case. That is the state of Christians in Pakistan today. There was a case about six weeks ago where a 14-year-old believed to have Down syndrome. Uh, several different stories. I got this both from VOM and uh, established uh, media like Reuters. Um, uh, she was accused by, by a local imam of having burned pages of the Quran. They found some burned pages in a, in a backpack or a satchel of some sort. And there was some Arabic writing on it. It was not clear whether it was from the Quran or not. And a little bit of an issue there, most Pakistanis can't read Arabic. Most Muslims can't read Arabic. And the only true um, Quran is one that's written in Arabic. Consequently, your imams become the purveyors and, and conveyors of the word coming from Allah. It, it comes through people because common people cannot look and cannot read uh, what they have there. So this young lady was arrested. Um, mob situation again. Family rescued from the mob. Um, there's a community of about 300 Christians living in that area. All 300 of them fled for their lives. That, that enclave, that little village within a much broader community, they fled for fear for their lives. About two weeks later, um, some police work was done, and they discovered that those papers, those burned papers, were planted. And the person who was accused of that was the local imam. It was believed because he had been ranting about that family for months on end, looking for some way and stirring up the people against that family. Not known whether he was, he was coveting something that they had or that he just was so anti-Christian that he would do, go to any lengths to do that. That situation is still not settled. I believe that family is not back in their home. I'm not sure if those 300 people have moved back into their own community yet. But that's the nature of what uh, Christians have to live under in other cultures. <clears throat> so let's talk about the broader perspective a little bit here. There are more than 50 countries in the world <clears throat> where Christians are persecuted because of their faith. They really fall into two categories. The first is restricted nations where Christianity or the practice of faith is illegal. Some, some element of faith or the practice of faith is illegal. China would fit into this category. In China, if you have to register to buy a Bible, that is using the law to manipulate and, and, and instill fear into people's hearts. Again, in our country, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't put up with that for one moment. We would have people in the streets. We'd have every librarian out waving flags, right? I mean, that's, that's just a basic tenet of freedom that you don't do that. Um, you can't, in many countries of the world, you cannot start a church. A church cannot buy property. That is a legal restricting uh, of Christianity and perhaps other religions as well. In many of these nations, it's not so much specifically anti-Christianity as it is a government that's fearful of any other source or locus of power. Uh, there's a gentleman from um, Sterling who is right now in Belarus, illegally. 
he is there helping uh, in a seminary situation. There is no legal seminary in Belarus. The seminary is in a church that has been there for years. You cannot open a new church, but existing churches can continue. He is preaching and teaching along with some others there. One thing he said to me before he left, he said, you know, in Belarus, public gatherings of more than two people are illegal. You can't have a birthday party outside without permission. You can't do anything with any kind of gather gathering in public without permission. That's one way they control religion. That's one way they maintain their power. I've experienced that once in America in a very tense situation where highway patrolmen in twos would walk into any small gathering. But they were not arresting people and saying this is illegal or taking names. They were shaking hands. And they were talking to people and saying, how is your day? You know, They were talking issues with people back in the Vietnam War era. Very respectful, done a totally different way. But can you imagine that on a daily basis? You meet some friends in the street. There are three of you. All of a sudden, this is an illegal gathering. Wow. You go somewhere private, you can talk. But that's the nature of restricted nations. The hostile nations are a little bit different. There, Christianity may be illegal. Multiple religions may be legal, such as in uh, Indonesia, such as in India. But local custom or culture or practice results in violence against Christians. There's a, um, a church slash seminary, I believe, in Indonesia that uh, has been attacked repeatedly. People were chased off their property. The whole issue went to the Supreme Court in Indonesia, and the church won. They said, <laughs> it's legal, you can be there, etc. But still, to this day, they have not been able to occupy that property because of the persecution, including police presence in that community. Um, that hostility can take a lot of forms. Um, it may be legal to have a Bible, it may be legal to have a church service, but if you're afraid of walking out of your house because they know you're a Christian, or you're afraid of your village being burned, as in Ethiopia, where 50, 50 um, villages were attacked last year, 50 churches burned in those 50 villages, and a, and a lot of homes burned. Christianity is illegal, but it was the surrounding Islamic culture um, that rose up and attacked those churches. So who are the persecutors? Um, they, are, they come in a couple of different categories. Probably the largest today are Muslim people, Muslim nations, and governments. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read the Quran, but there are very specific injunctions there about uh, apostasy and people who are not Muslim. Within Islam today, if, if you don't even belong to the same sect, many will see that as license to kill or to abuse or to mistreat someone. What's happening in Syria today? It's, it's a, a division primarily between Sunni and Shia, or Alawite, which is an offshoot, another offshoot of Shia Islam. Um, in my reading there, I've, I've even found where um, there are a lot of contradictory statements within the Quran and within the Islamic teachings, but um, it says that you know, you're, you're to deal honestly and with patience and kindness, whatever, towards your fellow Muslims. But people who are not Muslim, there's a whole different standard. They're one another's outside their initial community. In their basic teachings, not always in practice by any means, but in their basic teachings, basically says, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jew, if you're non-Muslim, I can lie to you, I can cheat you, I can treat you in all kinds of ways, I can, I can take you as slaves, I can sleep with your women and abuse them, I can do all these things and still be a good Muslim because I'm not abusing a Muslim. 
So there are some basic pieces in their core belief system, in their core um, documents, like our scripture, that uh, allow this kind of persecution. Communist governments, uh, the very foundations of communism from the very beginning were godless. Um, God was seen as competition to this, this whole notion of, of, of government and the nature of man. And communist governments to this day typically are pretty restrictive. Now, communism has changed its face in different ways, and they've had to deal with other pressures. China, still, their, base, their basis for opposition comes from their original belief uh, in communism, but also their desire to protect the state from any kind of threat. Um, so a lot of it actually is, is not so much just communism, but what I would call totalitarianism. Different systems of government that are based upon my holding power and a threat to power that Christianity uh, or other things pose to my regime. Anything that opposes my regime and threatens my stability or my control um, is liable to, to, catch, to catch heat, catch persecution. And finally, there are, are other religious groups, particularly uh, in India and Southeast Asia, uh, at times with Hindus, at times with Buddhists, where Christians are persecuted. Again, not so much by law, but by de facto practice. Um, there are also unique inroads, particularly with, with Hindus, that exist because of their polytheism um, that has allowed some inroads for, for people to share their Christian faith. So, I guess we got that in there twice. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Voice of the Martyrs now. This is a group that, that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, just within this last summer, uh, I became an official volunteer for them after background checks and uh, time that I spent there with them and doing a little course of study with them. Uh, VOM was founded by the Wurmbrandts, who were, uh, they were Jews who converted to Christ, I believe, in the late 20s, early 30s. Romanian couple. They were imprisoned and tortured for their preaching under the Nazis. Uh, both of them were arrested. Uh, Sabrina was told that her husband was killed and died in prison, basically. So even after she was released, she was living, uh, anticipating that her husband was dead. He wasn't, by God's grace, uh, he survived. Uh, a copy of his biography is back there, Tortured for Christ, uh, that you're welcome to take a look at. Um, they're the ones who, they were actually bought out of uh, prison back in the 1960s under the communists in Romania. Uh, a group of Christians raised, I don't know, ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 and bought their freedom and he came to the United States. In the, the, the mid to late 60s, they started with a mimeograph machine, sending out newsletters, uh, testifying before Congress, visiting churches. And VOM started under a different name, but I think sometime late in the 70s or early 80s uh, became known as Voice of the Martyrs. He had a, an extremely unique perspective because he was not just um, saying, talking about persecution and persecution of the church, but he also talked about how we love our communist captors how we love the Nazis who persecuted us. Absolutely amazing stuff. The heart that he had for the people who had abused uh, him and, and um, uh, Christians in Romania. Currently, there are over 30 offices worldwide. U.S. headquarters are about four hours away in Bartlesville. Um, VOM is in daily contact with the persecuted church around the world. And their modus operandi is very different than other missions groups. They don't, they don't have missions programs that they organize, coordinate, and send out missionaries. What they do is they have an information network. They have people with ear to the ground uh, all over the world through Bartlesville, but also the other headquarters. 
and they're in touch with the persecuted church in Pakistan, in India, in uh, Indonesia, in all of these 50 plus countries. And if there's an issue, when, when the churches were burned and a village is attacked in Ethiopia, word got back through VLM. And, and their question then is, what do you need? How can we pray? How can we come alongside you? And whether it's attorneys, whether it's uh, food, whether it's medical care, whether it's Bibles and, and literature, uh, whatever the need is. Uh, they buy motorcycles. They buy bicycles for pastors. They do hundreds of different things based on what the local church needs. They don't say, we think you need this, therefore we're going to organize and bring it in. They say, how can we pray for you? How can we help? Lots of discrete contacts that take place for that to occur. Um, see what I have up. Here are what their purposes are. And I'm sorry there's so much on the screen here. I could have broken it into five screens, but I didn't. To encourage and empower Christians to fulfill the Great Commission in areas of persecution. They're not just wanting to provide relief. They want the gospel to spread. Matter of fact, people under persecution don't always say, you know, pray that we stop getting persecuted. They say, pray that we may be released from jail, but this persecution is a good thing. It's a God thing. Two, to give relief to the families of Christian martyrs in those areas of the world. Uh, in Colombia, there's been a guerrilla conflict going on for 40 to 50 years with the FARC, F-A-R-C, are their initials. Um, the FARC is very deliberate about killing Christian elders and Christian pastors because they see it as a very direct threat to them. And yet Christianity is thriving in those portions of the jungle. This is, again, not an area where by law Christians are persecuted, but in this context of this war situation. So... Uh, VOM has helped uh, hundreds of pastors and elders' wives recover after husbands have been killed. They have helped provide training and employment, uh, whether it's uh, buying sewing machines and teaching them how to sew, or whether it is uh, providing bicycles to be able to transport goods. Um, number three, equip local Christians to win their enemies to Christ. They're not just helping people get out of these countries, though occasionally they work with people who really need to flee. Uh, but they're going back in. They're, they're sending Bibles in. In Colombia, um, there's a parachute program where uh, a plane flies over the jungle. They drop parachutes with scripture. They have uh, radios that are pre-tuned to Christian stations that are solar operated that they drop it with these parachutes into the jungle. Um, so they're trying to equip local Christians to be a witness even under persecution. Four, to take works of encouragement, undertake works of encouragement. Helping believers to rebuild their lives and witnesses in countries that have formerly suffered under communism. And this piece is, is really where Wernbrandt came from. He did not experience persecution under Muslims and under other religious groups. It was under communism, under the totalitarian fascist system of Hitler as well. Um, but to encourage the church in those settings in a variety of ways. Um, and then finally, to emphasize the fellowship of believers by informing the world of what's going on with these atrocities against Christians. Um, and that's how a lot of people in America come into contact initially with VOM, because they take the story of these Christians, they take what's going on in the world, and they get it back out via the, via the internet, via a monthly publication that they have, and I had one up here. This is their annual issue, but they have a monthly issue that they put out. How many of you get this in your home already? Several of you do? Great. If you don't, uh, you can sign up for that. It's free. They put out a quarter of a million of these every year out of Bartle, every month out of Bartlesville, and they do not charge for a single one. That's part of, of the ministry that God is, has, has given them. Um, now I've got copies of these in back. They're annual. You're welcome to take that. 
they also have uh, a map inside here. It opens up. It shows the uh, um, the 50 plus nations that are persecuting Christians this day, and a poster on the other side of that. Lots of good free information back there. I also have a number of books that are available. Um, there's no price on anything. The little stuff uh, they give away free all the time. The books, if you uh, would be willing to donate something for those that would be appreciated but uh, they won't they won't even tell me prices uh, because they they won't allow that um, so what are we to do how can we respond as Christians and I'd like to wrap up with that I think that's my next screen okay here are some ways that we can respond number one learning about what's going on in the world and praying for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted whether it's, whether it's capturing a, a story like Aja, who I've followed for years now. Uh, she's been in court uh, 25 to 30 times with a VOM lawyer, VOM supplied Pakistani lawyer each time. Whether it's Aja and her family and her daughters um, who are in hiding in another community, or whether it's praying for a specific country. Uh, learn about that country. Pray for those people. Um, uh, Prayer, of course, within their... Oh, I wanted to mention here that the website, which is on most VOM literatures, www.persecution.com. And they have a whole section, a whole um, frame to show you different ways that you can respond, whether through VOM or, or other routes. Um, praying for our brothers and sisters, number two up there, and then joining in VOM projects. Um, and there are other groups around the United States and around the world that work with the persecuted church. VOM is probably the foremost one, at least in the United States, perhaps in the world with the network that they have. They do things like action packs. Um, there are several countries in the world where they're bringing in things like blankets. Uh, Sudan, they have a blanket and a Bible program, uh, sending those in together. Those are distributed through the local church. Again, they're not just flying in and doing a setup, a distribution. They're doing that in response to uh, what the, the church in a local setting wants. Uh, they have different kinds of relief packs that they have available. Uh, when I was down in Bartlesville last time, I had the opportunity to do some of the repackaging of that and getting it ready to go out on rail cars to go to the coast to go um, to be shipped overseas. The Parachutes for Columbia, that's a project that can actually be done in any church. Um, they have patterns for that. They tell you how to do that. They get shipped off to Bartlesville, repackaged, and prepared to go off to Columbia. Um, letters to prisoners around the world. Um, they have to be very careful in terms of what names they give out and how they do that. Some names, some cases like Aja Bibi, that's her real name and that is the family because it's, it's, there's no hiding that. Other times they cloak the names, particularly the contacts that they have, uh, to prevent them from being arrested. But <clears throat> uh, from what I have been told by people at VOM, if, if uh, like this young man in Iran who is in jail right now for the next six years, is that prison starts to receive increasing letters for that, uh, or to that man, those letters may never get to him. But the guards and the people in the prison are going to get that and they're going to wonder, who are these people from all over the world who love this man and care about this man and why? Uh, often the prisoner will know that he's been getting a lot of mail, but won't necessarily get any of that mail themselves. Sometimes some of it will get through. Uh, different ways to support different VOM projects. Um, VOM in Bartlesville, Lord willing, sometime in the next six months I'll get a crew and we'll head down there for a day or longer uh, to visit their warehouse, to see their museum, to talk with the people uh, who work there. And then um, <clears throat> Steve and I have been talking about uh, Sterling Kids Nights out on January 18th, uh, which will be looking at that Jesus film that was being uh, shown, the clips that were being shown earlier. 
And then uh, we may have some project nights once a month after that, things like working with the parachutes, writing letters to prisoners, um, working with action packs and such. So those are possibilities, uh, different ways that you could get involved. Um, before I close, I might mention once again, I've got some things back there. Some of you have already seen a number of those in the past, uh, but feel free to, to look at those and, and uh, take whatever you'd like. Let me, let me close with a word of prayer, if I may, and then I'll, I'll take any questions. And Lord God, I thank you uh, for this time together. Um, I thank you for persecution, Lord God. Um, Lord, we, we have difficulty in this country, in this culture, as your children understanding that because we've been so blessed uh, in so many ways, not just materially, Lord, but by freedoms that we have within this country. Lord, help our hearts to grow. Help our understandings to grow um, uh, for the persecuted church. Help us to lift them up as another part of your body, Lord God, uh, that is hurting. Help us to find ways to love them, to encourage them, and to support them. And Lord, help us to um, not to shy away from persecution and, and to be bold ourselves, Lord God, uh, even within this culture, as our culture morphs and changes in ways that, that dishonor you and dishonor your word. Lord, we, um, we don't understand what it would be like to have our lives on the line each day uh, by proclaiming that you are Lord. But Lord, that day may come, and it may come sooner rather than later. Uh, guard our hearts, steal our hearts, Lord God. Prepare us uh, for that potential time. Lord, I thank you for this group. I thank you for those who are here and for those who are sick and not home, at home and out, unable to come. Uh, Steve, in particular, Lord, this day. We thank you and praise you in your holy and precious name. Amen. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus back.